Um, if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to John 20. Um, it's extremely important that, that the things that I'm saying, the things that we're looking at, you see, are in the Word of God. That they're not just things that I'm constructing on my own and formulating arguments on my own, but that it's actually from the written Word of God. So get there, click there, turn there, whatever that looks like for you. Um, and we'll get going here. So, um, when I was in high school, uh, I was introduced to this incredibly attractive um, blonde. Um, she also drove a convertible, and uh, I was I was into her. Uh, so it actually worked out really good because this uh, under younger classman um, was up in math, and so we were both in the same math class, and I, you know, um, had a hard time with math, right? Um, And so I could go to her and get some help, um, right? So she somehow was sitting next to me often. Um, We'll just call that seating chart random, like teacher randomly put her there, um, or actually I don't even know if there were assigned seats in that class. Anyway, um, so... uh, so I find myself sitting next to her and um, would uh, often just be so grateful for her assistance in my mathematic um, education. And uh, I remember a specific time we were at her house. Um, I, was, I went over for math help, right? And uh, we were sitting up in her bedroom because where you get math help is in a girl's bedroom. Well, we're sitting on the floor and uh, people are like giving me this crazy look up here. Um, yes. Sitting on the floor, um, her parents are just downstairs, um, just to make that clear, um, and uh, we're uh, sitting there, and I remember just this, uh, we're doing math, and one of the worst things about doing math is when the sun is shining in your eyes, and so it was like on my paper, I could hardly see my paper, and so I was like, I just need to move over here a little bit closer to you, and so I pulled myself in, and then we would sit, continue to, uh, you know, um, she was helping me so much in math, and um, and. Uh, that was my wife, um, as many of you know. Um, and uh, my, my life was, is, was and is never the same as a result of the things we chuckle about now. Of, I mean, we could bring you up here and have you share your stories about you know, your pursuit of... He's like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> um, but my, my life literally was completely altered, okay, um, because of my encounter with her, because of meeting her. I mean, we, we look at each other often, and we're like, I'm so glad I get to walk this journey with you. There's no one else I'd rather walk this journey with. I mean, we're 15 years past that point when we first engaged with one another, and listen, like, our life is so changed. But listen, it doesn't Hold a candle to the life-altering event that happened in John 20. Okay, we're going to talk about the resurrection as you've, as you've heard. Okay, and there's no more significant event. Okay, no, it's not Easter. I had a buddy, like, I was talking about asking some questions about the resurrection. He's like, dude, it's not even Easter. I'm like, I know. We're going to do something. We're going to do the Easter bunny on Easter, but today we're going to do the resurrection. Not really. Um, and so, uh, but there's, there's no event in the course of history that has a more impactful um, ramifications than the event of the resurrection, than the event of Christ coming alive. 
Sin is defeated. Death is defeated. We have a hope. We have a renewed perspective as a result of Christ being alive. We heard this um, last week, as Rick so beautifully ingrained this in our minds. Whatever noise you hear in this life, the resurrection speaks louder and it speaks last. Like, that's huge because, I don't know about you, but like, there's a lot of noise going on in our world, as there is in your world. There's a lot of noise, but the truth of what we're looking at today is that the resurrection, it's louder. Like, it's going to trump whatever noise that's going on, or it should, and it will always have the last voice. So, let's get to the text. John 20. Let's see what's going on here with this significant event. Beginning at verse 1, it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Okay, so up to this point, up to this point, Jesus is just pretty normal, right? I mean, great teacher, great guy, but he's dead, right? And so we could argue, yeah, there's things that, definitely some things that set him apart in his life and in his ministry, but at this point, he's in the grave like every other dead person, right? Okay, um, he is dead, like every other teacher, like every other leader, like every other role, model, and the closest followers of Christ, they're there on the scene, and they're in a state of panic. Now, I don't know about you, but any any of you ever panicked? Okay, a little interactive thing here real quick. I want you to think of a time when you panicked. Something was going on in your world, in your life, when you just kind of lost it and panicked, okay? And I want you to share it with the person next to you. Think of a time when you kind of panicked and things were crazy and you reacted or overreacted or like, okay, you got it? Okay, now tell it to the person next to you. Ready, set, set. set. You're, you're like, it was with the person next to me. Like, she was the one who pointed out the fact that I was over the, <laughs> overreacted. Over. You think of one? Like, babe, when was the last time I freaked out? When was the last time I panicked? It's like one day I know what happened. Or maybe think of a time when someone else did and it was really funny and share that story. So we can all either resonate with a time in our life personally or someone else's life where panic kind of dominated us. We were overwhelmed. In this scene, in this story, you have the closest people to Christ who were on the scene at the cross here. Mary Magdalene is just undone. She doesn't know what to do. She comes to the tomb and not only is it open, the body is completely gone and she's panicked. She goes and gets Simon Peter. She goes and gets John. 
And they're, they're trying to figure out what to do. They're trying to really, if you ever face panic, what happens in panic is all of a sudden there's, there's a sense of urgency that wasn't there before. Right? And so now in this moment, there's this sense of urgency. Like look at verse 3. It says, so Peter went to the other disciple, um, which is kind of humorous because um, that's John. That's the author. So he's writing and he calls himself the other um, disciple. So Peter went to me, is what it, what it should say, um, and, and they were going to the tomb, but when um, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I just, I just love the humility of John here because you know what he wanted to write? He wanted to be like, there was a foot race to the tomb and man, I smoked him. Like he was gone. Like I was in there, investigated the whole scene, and then had to go back and get in some water before he actually made it the rest of the way. Um, but he's just like, no, the, the other disciple outran Peter and, uh, they reached the tomb and then they get there and look what happens. Verse five and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. So John, he gets to the tomb and think, think of it. Okay. Picture it stooping. So like there's this opening that's smaller than them. And so he has to kind of stoop in to look in. And he's like, I'm not, I'm not going in there. You ever been in those kind of situations, like a cave or something like that? And you're like, I'm going to look in, but I'm not about to go. And then you have Peter, you know, prideful, bold, cocky Peter. He's like, he, he finally gets there. And he's like, you know, totally out of breath, just got dusted. And he's like, look out, I'm going in. So he goes in, Verse 6, and Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, was not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Okay, this is where we get our theology of folding. So as parents, we teach our kids that when you wake up in the morning, you don't take off your jammies and throw them on the floor. You fold them neatly, and you put them in your dresser because that's what Jesus did. Right? Interesting, kind of an interesting passage um, where it says that the, the linen cloths, actually the burial clothing, the head wrap was actually kind of separate, had been folded up and set aside. Um, okay, one of the arguments against the resurrection is that the disciples came and they stole the body. Okay, which would require that Mary Magdalene had like kung fu skills to take out the Roman guards that were protecting it. Um, but also, it's kind of a bizarre that whoever stole the body would unwrap it first, fold up the head wrap, and neatly, I know when, you know, if you've ever been broken into, the thieves are always real good about doing it neat and tidy. Um, no, obviously not the case. Um, obviously, we see a flaw in that line of thinking here. And so they get there, and look what happens after Peter goes in. It says in verse 8, Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. Well, he points that out. Remember, the other guy? Yeah, he, he, won, he, he, beat, he won in the race. He saw and he believed. Okay, so I love just kind of how it illustrates. Like, man, some people have the real gift of faith. Some people have the real gift of like, like they see it and they believe it. Like, like just trust in God that, hey, this is what Jesus said. This is who Jesus says he is. This is what he said he'll do. Like, so that's just what he's going to do. And the others are like more skeptical. We're going to get to Thomas a little bit later. And, and even Peter str- struggling maybe on some level to really understand. Because notice what it says. It goes on to say for, in verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. 
Then the disciples went back to their home. So there's an element to faith that even John here, it says he believed, but he didn't fully understand. Have you had that happen in your life? Okay, a lot of times, like, that's part of what faith is. Okay, it's not just this abstract, disconnected from history, because as one theologian put it, when we talk about the resurrection, if the resurrection isn't rooted in a historical event, then it falls just along the lines of myth. Okay, but the resurrection actually is a historical event that happened. It's credible. We can verify it scientifically. But yet, even in this element of faith and this element of belief, there's aspects where we still don't understand. That's clear here. We see that here in this passage. They didn't understand, but they still trusted. Still trusted that, man, this is what Jesus said. This is what he says, who he says he is. And then Peter and John, they go home, probably quite unsatisfied and a little unsettled. But you'll notice that Mary Magdalene didn't. So picture the scene at the tomb. What did Mary Magdalene do? Look at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Okay, so Mary was at the cross, watched them crucify Christ. Here she's at the scene. Body is gone. She is beside herself, weeping. Okay, now, do you remember back? you remember who Mary Magdalene is? Do you remember what happened with Mary Magdalene? She was in an unbelievable amount of bondage. She was oppressed and possessed by seven demonic forces. Scripture says that Jesus cast seven demons out of her. Now, put yourself in, in her shoes. She's outside this tomb, and the very one who saved her, like, is unaccounted for. Like, like not just like, there's the body, he's gone, but like, like we don't even know, the, we don't know where his body is. Like, he's unaccounted for. Like, I think that's profound. I think it's profound because... Like, she's undone here because when you experience Christ, it changes you forever. Right? Like, you've experienced that. When you experience the saving work of Jesus, like, it changes you forever. Seven demons. She's set free. Gosh, maybe this morning, that's us. Like, we need our view of Christ to be resurrected. We need how we view and how we cling to the salvation that we have to be restored. Some of us are just, we're just kind of in the like, kind of do the church thing. We kind of go about our life and like, this is who Jesus is. But like, we're not undone with the reality of the saving work that Christ has done. Let me read you two passages. Don't look them up. I just want you to hear them. 1 Corinthians 6. Listen to this. Listen to the saving work that Christ has done. Verse 9 says this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. 
you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That's describing this picture even that Mary Magdalene had of the saving work that Jesus completely set her free from her bondage. Titus, listen to this one. It says this. I love this passage. For we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Does not, does not that describe the day that we live in? Just this raging, malicious, hating one another. I mean, that's what's going on in our community. Just this hatred for one another. Hate, like you're at fault. No, you're at fault. I'm not at fault. Like I'm good. You're at fault. Just this malicious hatred. It even describes us. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Listen, that's the saving work that Christ has done in our life. That's the saving work that Mary Magdalene is experiencing outside the tomb where her Savior is unaccounted for and she does not know how to handle it. She's undone. Because when Jesus saves you, it forever changes you. Forever changes you. And we see we see this continue. Look, look down at how the passage continues. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she went, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head, one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? I just, I just love it. I love how God, when we're in despair, when we're doubting the truth of who he is, when we're doubting the truth of the power of the resurrection, when our perspective is frail, when we're pessimistic, when we're not seeing things properly, how good of God to bring someone to, to like restore us, right? To come and say, like, what are, you, what are you doing? Like, why are you feeling this way? Why are you thinking this way? And it continues on. She said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. It's interesting because um, scholars go back and forth as to why she didn't recognize him, right? I mean, if she was so close with him, if she had such a personal encounter, like why in this moment would she have this conversation with Jesus and not know it was him? Some argue that she was crying so much that her tears blurred her vision, but also possibly the idea that the resurrection body of Christ, we'll see as, as we move forward, actually had, was, was different. Okay? There was, so there, she's here in this moment not realizing it's him. And then look at what Jesus 
Look at how it plays out. Look at what Jesus does. Jesus said to her, Mary, like, like she knew his voice, right? Like he says the words, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. She's like, she realizes it's him and she like latches on. Okay, like a kid who can't find their parents and when they do, like they're not letting go. Do not cling to me for I've not yet ascended to the Father. She's, he's like, I'm not, I'm not leaving yet. Like I'm, I'm still here. But go, go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and, and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that she had said, that he had said these things to her. So in the midst of this, there's this, she goes on this road from this disparaging tears where she's just weeping to this exuberant joy. And the key component there is a theophany. Anybody know what a theophany is? What? You're like shaking your head, like, call you out? What do you think? So like a, visible, uh, a, visible, a physical manifestation of God. So here in this um, instance, like she has this encounter, this physical manifestation of God, and it alters her. It changes her because she was in this like undone, like no hope in despair. She encounters God. And what are her words? I've seen the Lord. I've I've seen him. I wonder if at times, maybe even you can resonate with this, that walking with Jesus kind of becomes mechanical. It becomes difficult. It becomes, listen, when you don't regularly encounter relationship with Jesus, like, you're going to live in the despair. You're going to live in the, I don't have hope. I don't know what's going on. It's why Jesus says when, we, when you celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember why? Because we're so easy to forget. Why do we need to remember so much? Because the hope of the resurrection, it changes our perspective. Where we see things with eyes, where we engage with a vitality and with a confidence that apart from that, there's no positive engagement. There's no hope in the midst of broken. There's no, um, there's good here. Like we can engage hard things. We can engage difficult things. We can, listen, Press in where others would say, get out. Difficult? Get out. Like, what are you doing? Why are you still living there? Why are you still going there? Why are you still in relationship with that person? Get out. And upon realizing it was Jesus, Mary wouldn't let him go because she'd realized how much she had, he had impacted her life. I wonder if at times um, the despair in our lives is directly connected to that idea that we don't have a renewed vision of Christ. We don't have a renewed understanding, a renewed perspective. And this hopeful living is a religious teaching and not a daily encounter. And what, what, what we do is we give in to the noise. Because 
what? We just, we said earlier, the resurrection speaks louder and it speaks last if you let it. So we give into the noise. So all this noise, all this stuff screaming around us, here's who I need to be, here's what I need to do, here's who I need to pursue, here's how I need to live my life, all this noise, okay? And in the midst of that, because we don't have a daily understanding, a daily renewer of here's who a resurrected Christ is, the very things that we read, that Rick um, led us through reading, the implications of Jesus is alive, what happens? The noise drowns it out. And so the resurrection, it doesn't speak loudest in our life. And it doesn't have the final voice in our life. Because we're not renewed in our perspective of the implications of Jesus is alive. Let's talk about fear for a second. Okay, another um, little interactive deal. I want you to think of a time when you were gripped by fear. A time when, when you were just fear consumed you. Maybe as an adult, maybe as a kid, um, and uh, share it with somebody next to you. Go. I have to think back to childhood for some. Anybody want to share one? Got one? Ben wants to share one. So, I guess I was about 18. My parents had given me a repelling gear when I was 16. And the one thing you were always taught is you never repel by yourself because you always need someone to touch you. Well, I'm crazy. So, I went out to my grandparents' farm and went down to the bluffs. And set my rope, set my anchor, repelled off the edge. What would you say are some of the natural reactions in fear? Like just naturally, like so you can speak out loud. What are some of the just naturally, here's kind of how we, how we can, how mankind can tend to react in fear, in fearful situations. What? Paralyzed? That's a good one. Just kind of don't know what to do. Any other natural reactions to fear? Running. <laughs> yes. I'm afraid. Run. Sweating or sledding? Okay, they said sledding. It's like, okay. Get your mind off of it. Let's go sledding. Sweating. I know the natural reactions to fear. I remember as a kid, um, I had this repetitive, like, nightmare. Like, I don't know why, it just visited me all the time, and I can't even, even describe what was happening. It involved, like, my dad driving a tractor down my hallway in my house. And, like, that was part of it. I, I don't even understand it even as an adult. But, like, when this, when this happened, like, I, as a kid, I'm terrified, right? And so what do I do? I run to my parents. And if their door's unlocked, I run and I get in bed with them. If it's not, I sit out there and I bang on the door, right? Um, the other night, we had Tobin. He ran to our room, got in bed with us, and said, Mommy, Daddy, I had a really bad dream. Like, buddy, get in here. 
We're going to protect you. Like, get in bed with him. And he slept that night with us. So fear, fear is a legit thing. The disciples are overcome by fear here in this moment. Look at verse 19. It said, on the evening of that day. So it's Sunday. Okay, um, the day of the Lord um, connected to his resurrection. It's the, it's the evening of his resurrection day. Okay, but not just physically the evening. Like, this is speaking even to the spiritual implications of the darkness that's still looming over the disciples. It's night. It's dark. It's still dark for the disciples who have seen Jesus buried, don't know what's going on, don't know what to do. Okay? On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, okay, so let's just stop right there. Um, anytime you're in a room and you, you have um, everyone accounted for, you know everyone that's present and the facility is locked and all of a sudden someone is in the room that wasn't in the room beforehand, you got to wonder, like, okay, like, what's going on here? Um, Jesus shows up on the scene. Doors are locked, and he speaks to them. And, and I don't think we see it initially, but I believe there's, there's kind of this present um, kind of a rebuke, okay? Because what are they doing? They're, they're sitting in the darkness and the despairing of the night, Locked door. They're afraid. They're afraid the Jews are going to come get them. They're, they're, they're in fear. They're paralyzed. And what happens? Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, peace be with you. Because when peace is with you, fear shrinks. Okay? When the peaceful promise of God is with us, namely the presence of God, specifically in this story, but also in our own lives, fear, it shrinks. It deteriorates. It doesn't control us. So Jesus shows up and he said, Peace be with you. And when they had seen this, when he had said this, they showed him his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So, so, He's like, what are you doing in this room? Like, you're, you're in despair. You're locked yourself in the room for fear of mankind. Like, what are you doing in this room? I'm sending you. The Father sent me. Okay, one of the things that marks, you see a theophany anywhere in Scripture. The theophany is often marked by a commissioning. It's like Isaiah, when Isaiah saw the Lord, Right? What happens? Here am I. Send me. So a theophany happens, and in the face of an encounter with God, God sends you. It's the same thing that happened with Mary. Okay, in verse 17, Jesus says, I'm not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers. Tell them. Okay? You encounter God. You're sent. Because that perspective changes your view of life and sends you out to be on mission for the gospel. And the disciples here are locked in a room. They've succumbed to fear. And look at what happens. Jesus says, I'm sending you. And when they had said these things, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, um, real quick, let me mention this. Um, if you read that, it might throw some confusion in your mind. 
Because Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit. Um, it's not Acts 2, right? It's like, wait a second, I thought the Holy Spirit was coming in Acts 2, okay? Um, it's a foretaste of Pentecost, Okay? It's a foretaste for the disciples of what will happen in Acts 2 when he sends the fullness of the Spirit because here's what he's doing. He, he's showing them you're in fear. You're locked in a room. I'm alive. Okay? And my commissioning on you is to not to come to fear and lock yourself in a room and hide in dark times, but to go and engage because the Holy Spirit of God is in you. I've commissioned you to be peacemakers and to be light in dark times times. Now, so it came out in the news last week that um, the housing market, as a result of the events of Ferguson, is beginning to decline in North County. Okay, so like 2000, what was it, 2007, 2008, property values began to take an all-time low, um, and then you began to see them stabilize a little bit, you know, start looking on the up and up. Okay, first it happened like August, and they're already saying that as a result of those events, property values are down. Um, and if you saw that, I don't remember what, um, what day it was, but it was Elliot Davis. Um, and he was talking about the impact of the housing market on schools. And so um, schools actually take a revenue from the housing market, and the impact is that Ferguson Forest and School District, Hazelwood School District are out lots and lots of money because the housing market is down. Now, like we have, we have like one of two options here, right? It's like, oh man, like my property values decrease, like um, things are looking grim, like we should go, right? Pack up, we probably can't move, so let's just rent, like that's kind of what we do, right? You can't, can't sell, so let's just rent, um, you know, figure out how to get out of this situation and we're going to move. We're going to go west, we're going to get out of here. No knock on renting. I actually have a, I rent. We rent. We rent one of our homes. Um, but listen, and no knock on anyone who's ever um, left North County and gone across the river or to another town or to another city. Here's what I love about so many of you is that you live in North County because you have a passion for North County. You live here because you want to see the gospel flourish. You want to see relationships flourish. You want to see this community flourish. So you live here. You shop here. You spend time here. You invest here because you love it here. But more than that, you believe, and I believe, that God's called us to be ministers of reconciliation here. Do you know what? You look at the statistics of the connection between violence and education. And where education begins to decline, violence begins to escalate. Okay, so when I read this passage here that talks about a risen Christ who lovingly rebukes the disciples by saying, why are you in this locked room? Like, why are you so interested in, a, in your personal safety when I've filled you with my Holy Spirit and I've sent you to be a peacemaker where peace doesn't exist because the grass isn't always greener on the other side, okay? It's why I believe that we should be on parent power at the Hazelwood School District, that you should go on field trips with your kids' classes, that you should engage with teachers, that you should get to know principals. Ask them, how can we serve in your school? How can we love your school? That's why we should go to the community centers and say, 
man, how can we serve here? How can we, what are the needs of this community? It's why when you have mean neighbors, you don't just up and leave, right? Because we have a hope and a perspective that's beyond the what's going on around us because we offer the gospel brings a story, brings a perspective to the story that apart from the gospel, things look grim, right? I mean, think about the implications of that, even as we await the verdict, right? Okay, that our promise that we have in the Lord isn't based in external things. Isn't based in where, where our schools are at or where our homes are at. Okay, now listen, we have, like, God's given us brains and he's given us a means to make choices that are wise. And I, I firmly believe, okay, so like, let me, let me use this example. Um, so, as a foster parent, one of the, one of the challenges that foster parents face, um, that probably many of you would think are similar to regular parents, and in some ways they are, but, but challenges between um, traumatized children and biological children. It's one of the things in our training we talked about a ton, is how do you handle bringing traumatized kids into a home and have them rubbing up against um, your biological kids? Okay? Um, and we don't have an extreme situation by any means, um, but like at times, like there's war and there's, I say war, like there's fighting and there's like, it can be ugly Okay, um, and listen, we could very easily and very actually have people respect us for choices, um, say, you know what, we could go to our caseworker and we could say, it's too hard, really affecting our kids, and we, we need them to go somewhere else. Now, we have very close friends that actually had that situation happen where the kid they had in their home was too much for them to handle, okay? So there are sinuating circumstances, obviously, but here's the point. The point is this, that as God's people, we don't live with this perspective that I'm beyond engaging in hard things, but we have a hope that's beyond that, says, you know what, I'm not going to just throw this kid back into the system and have him have to relearn attachment and refigure out all these things, but we're going to love them, we're going to work through them, we're going to teach our own kids how to engage with them and love them so that we can be peacemakers where peace doesn't exist. We stay and we engage. We enter the fray like Christ entered the fray. Because of the resurrection, we hold on to promises that are beyond the physical and the temporal. Uh, let's wrap it up. 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them because Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I, unless I see his hands and the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe so there's this argumentation going on between the disciples about Jesus and about belief. And then Jesus is going to show up on the scene. Verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and 
put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I just love the patience of Jesus there. The patience to deal with a high-maintenance guy like Thomas. I got to see him. I got to see. I got to see his side unless I see his wounds, unless I touch the scars. He's just patient. He's just, he comes, he enters in. He's like, okay, then here we go. Let, let, me, let me make this real. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Where is it in your life? Where is it in my life? That we need our perspective resurrected. Maybe it's relationally and how we view relationships. Where we, God's calling us to engage in a way that's not despairing. That's not giving up. Continuing to fight. Maybe it's with physical safety. Maybe you place so much weight on the, the, the physical circumstances around you. That really destroy the protecting reality and the calling of Christ on our lives. Do you have a tendency to fight or do you have the tendency to run? Like, I'm, let's just go. Let's get out of here. Let's quit. This is hard. The gospel calls us to something greater. The resurrection of Christ gives us a perspective that's different. And then he ends it in 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's our hope today. That's the hope. The day that changed the course of history that, man, Christ is alive. And it changes how we engage. And it gives us a perspective and a peace that's beyond anything else and sends us out. Let's pray and let's... uh, Let's respond to the Lord. God, I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the resurrection. I thank you for your calling on us to be at peace. To be peacemakers. That you've sent your Holy Spirit to engage us, to indwell us, to send us out. God, thank you for your promises. God, I pray that even as we engage here, that we would be reminded of the perspective that's changed when we cling to Christ. God, teach us to treasure our Savior like Mary did. God, in these times, I pray that you would help us to see you, to encounter you We love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that we have. In Christ's name, amen.